Hi, everyone. We've got a great new episode for you today with a very special guest. My colleague, Ben Wild, is talking to a true pioneer in the software security industry. He's someone who has had a unique and deep set of experiences in this space, and who has a rich understanding of where things in the industry currently stand and where they're going. Not only that, he's a role model for me as a podcast host. We're talking about the person behind the Silver Bullet Security Podcast, who's interviewed over 130 security experts over the years the show has been running. And as we'll hear, his list of accomplishments go well beyond that. Buckle up for a fantastic discussion about software security. I promise this is an episode you don't want to miss. I'm John Pryle, and welcome to the Impact Podcast. Thanks for taking the time, Gary, to join us on the podcast today. Could you perhaps give our audience a bit of background as to what you're doing today and how you came to be where you are? Sure. So I'm Gary McGraw. I am currently the Vice President of Security Technology at Synopsys. And we have a thousand people that do software security, which is a field that I help to spearhead I've written a bunch of books on software security, including Building Secure Software and the book Software Security Itself and Exploiting Software and a bunch of others. I started my career as a research scientist and I have a PhD in computer science and cognitive science, but um, I've really become an applied technologist and a business guy. And so that's really what I focus on these days is, is making software security work in the real world and making companies tick. Thanks, Gary. Look, you've said in the past that software security is not about adding security features into code, but rather it's about integrating security practices into the way that you build software. Let's start there. Can you expand on what you mean? Yeah, so that message is really tailored at developers who tend to believe that security is a thing, like a feature or a function, when in fact security is a property. And it's a property very much like reliability or availability or safety or quality. And so the challenge for software security is figuring out how to build software properly in the first place and how to test it while you're building it to eradicate bugs that may be around because the language has problems in it from a security perspective, looking at the design to find flaws that might result in security problems and so on. And so if you're trying to get software to be secure, you have to integrate a number of activities through the software development lifecycle. And there are lots and lots of people doing that sort of activity these days, doing software security initiatives is what we say in the BSIM. I've been doing that for 20 years, and we've made huge progress in the space in those 20 years, which is pretty gratifying, really. You mentioned the BSIM just now, the building security and maturity model. Could you explain a little bit more about that? My understanding is it's not really about being prescriptive in terms of specific security controls. It's more focused on the types of activities that an organization should undertake. Yeah. So, you know, a long time ago when I was a young scientist, I was convinced that process didn't matter. And I was really focused on code. And I said, yeah, yeah, whatever. Just give me your code and we'll scan it and we'll find some bugs. And You know, it doesn't matter if you came up with that through goat sacrifice or the capability maturity model. doesn't really matter to me. Um, Just show me your code. It turns out that I was wrong. And in order to do software security properly, 
you have to have a whole bunch of activities that you sort of add seamlessly into the way you develop software. So we describe what those activities are in the BSIM, and then we use the BSIM um, framework and set of activities to measure software security in a firm or in a, you know, a part of a firm. And so we've been doing that for, I guess, just about 10 years. And we're getting ready to release the eighth version of the BSIM in the fall. We always do, we're doing it once a year now. The, the BSIM model is really a measurement stick for software security. So you look at the activities that you're doing and you can compare yourself to other people or other firms and see what they're doing. And then you can tell where you stand with your peers. So for example, we've measured well over 40 financial services industry organizations. And so we can easily compare a multinational bank to all the other multinational banks and tell them how they're approaching software security and whether they're doing what everybody else is doing or not. And so the reason it's not prescriptive is the BSIM doesn't say you should do this. It just says everybody else is doing this. You know, maybe you should consider doing this or everybody else is doing this and you're doing this. Everybody else is doing this and you're not doing this. And those are things that you can think about. The challenge, of course, is, you know, a lot of people are still getting breached or they're still having difficulties. Is there, with 10 years worth of data now, is there some evidence that those folks that are doing more of these security process practices are making a meaningful difference to their security? Is there, is there some sort of external measurement that can be applied to there this? There is no such thing as a security measurement. And so that's the challenge. You know, people would love to have a magic box that you put software in and it either says secure or not secure. But sadly, because of theoretical constraints, including, say, the halting problem, we just can't do that. We couldn't even put a piece of code into a box and figure out if it's going to stop, much less if it's secure or not. And so this notion that you could somehow measure an organization and go, that one's secure is wishful thinking at best and misguided at worst. So how do we make sure that the activities being done in something like a, the BSIM, so the activities being documented by the BSIM process are not just groupthink, that they're actually valuable activities? They, they, they could be just groupthink. Yeah. <laughs> and so what we have to do as scientists is say, this is what we observe out there. These are professionals that have staffs of 100 people with $10 million budgets, and they're doing um, what they think is best to make software security happen. Um, so we're going to look at the list of, of organizations and, the, and know the people that are doing it and say, they're probably doing the right thing, especially since everybody seems to be doing similar things. But the criticism that everybody could be collectively on crack is valid, and that's just the way things are. Got it. So talk to me a little bit about lists. And in particular, we debate the value or lack of, of things like the OWASP top 10. Right. Generally. And, you know, I'm a marketing guy, right? So, uh, I like that. <laughs> so it's, you know, it needs to be simple. And especially when dealing with executives, you know, security is a, a pretty complicated field. It's not very welcoming. It's hard to do right. You know, there's all these different aspects of it. So when someone yeah. comes along with a list of 10 things to do, is that inherently 
a good or a bad thing because on one hand it does give you a starting point but then of course you have the issue of people blindly following this and saying well i did those 10 things i can't i can't understand why i just got breached well look the owasp top 10 if we're going to talk about that is not a list of things to do it's a list of 10 problems and um, the claim is would be that you look through your code and you get rid of those 10 problems and everything should be just fine unfortunately there are tens of thousands of things that you can do wrong not 10 and so you know the obvious question to ask is what about number 11 what about number 12 you know and so on the other problem with something like that list is that there's an overfocus on easy stuff on simple bugs now sure we should get rid of easy stuff for sure and why not start with that but when you don't even acknowledge that there are design problems and you don't look for design problems you're going to have security issues caused by bad design and so i worry that in all of the marketing stuff which is nice and easy to understand we dumb things down so far that they're no longer really useful i think the OWASP top 10 probably helped years and years ago when nobody knew anything about software security but we've come so far since then that to pretend that getting rid of 10 bugs would help security on planet Earth is pretty silly. You mentioned design there, and I know that you often talk about that as a, so you've got, I guess, coding errors and mistakes that people make, so quality errors, and then you've got, I guess, errors in thinking. Is that, is that what you mean by design? Yeah, I mean, many problems in security are bugs that you can find in code. You just go, oh, look, on line 47, you use the wrong kind of system call in C, and that's a security problem. And you can find those pretty automatically with a program like a static code analyzer, and then you can fix them. So we can automatically look for bugs, and then we can pretty easily fix them, generally speaking. On the other hand, there are also design issues. For example, a really simple one is forgot to authenticate user. So anybody who uses the program wields all of the power of that program. There's no discrepancy between lowly user and super mega ultra god. It's just all the same. You run the program, it does the same thing for everybody. And so that's a design issue. Other design issues may have to do with the way things are communicated, with the way authentication and authorization is handled, and all sorts of other things. We actually convened a group of security people that were good at architectural analysis together through the auspices of the IEEE, and we formed a thing called the IEEE Center for Secure Design. And if you're really interested in what's a flaw versus what's a bug and what are design things really like, take a look at that IEEE Center for Secure Design um, report that we put out, which talks about real flaws and how to avoid them. So you obviously spend a lot of time talking to developers and technical folks, but I'm sure in your role, you get rolled in to speak to a lot of executives as well. What are the, the big misconceptions that you see in the executive suite around security that you think we need to overcome to, to move things forward? In, in particular, in the software industry, I mean, you work with a lot of different types of companies, right? So, so talk to me more about this, the software company executive and what they do or don't get about the problem. 
I think by now, most software company executives, especially of large software houses, completely understand the notion of what they call product security. And a long time ago, they didn't. And in fact, there was even a problem with software companies that built security stuff like Symantec does, who thought, well, we build security stuff. Why wouldn't we have secure software? <laughs> well, they found out that, that uh, they found out why. <laughs> and, and they started working on that, you know, 10 years ago. The good news is that generally speaking, it's easier to convince software companies, hey, some of those quality issues can lead directly to security problems because they already are familiar with how software works, the ins and outs of getting everything right, the fact that writing good code is hard. These are not things that are surprising to software companies. On the other hand, it's a little bit trickier to convince, say, a bank or a retailer or whatever, a healthcare firm, that they are actually a software house and that they have these software problems. One thing that really helped in the financial services industry, believe it or not, was Sarbanes-Oxley, which made the executives at banks realize how dependent on software they were. Uh, and that meant that having a conversation about, well, you need to make that software behave and it's what leads to security problems when it doesn't behave, much easier to have in the first place. We certainly see companies that have a bit more compliance oversight, whether it's HIPAA or Sarbanes-Oxley, to have a, a bit more of an awareness. But we also see a behavior of playing to the rules and stopping yes. at the compliance level, which is a, in, in itself is a, a big problem. Same, same issue as the, I've done those 10 things, what yeah. about number 11? Yeah, so... So we have debates in the technical community about whether compliance is good or bad. Um, is it a force for good or a force for wasting time? And generally speaking, I think compliance gets you started, but it's a pretty low bar. And so you shouldn't feel like if you're compliant with something like an industry standard, say PCI, or you're compliant with PCI, which is not really a, a regulation or anything, then you're secure because that's not true. So if you understand that the spirit of compliance is to actually make stuff secure, then you know you have to go beyond just the simple-minded stuff that's in most compliance regimes and, and get into actually building things properly, security engineering and software security. And I think a lot of people know that now. What, what about venture-backed companies? I mean, we're a growth yeah. equity fund. We see, I wouldn't name names, but we see a number of companies that have prioritized feature over security practice. There is a cost with doing security right. And there's also a cost with doing security wrong, but doing and yeah. doing it wrong, you're effectively just deferring it to a later date. And these executives, all the executives we, we deal with are risk takers, right? They, they have a, a greater appetite for risk than say that the CEO of Symantec because that's, that's their business is, is, is doing that. So do you see them as a different beast? Do you, how do you approach that? And how do you get earlier stage companies thinking about, building and security? Well, that's a really good question. And the answer is it depends on the nature of the business of the startup. As an example of doing things right, there's a startup that I'm an advisor of called Max My Interests, or Max for short. 
And Max understood that security was going to be a critical feature for what they do, that their users were going to expect and demand security. So they actually came to, to me and to us and said, hey, we want to build security in from the very beginning, even though we're a tiny little startup because it's super important. And they did everything right. We did design stuff. We did, we, we've done you know, periodic penetration tests. We've done bug scanning for the code and you know, set things up properly from an operations perspective and logging and all that jazz. So in that case, it was pretty fundamental to the core of the startup. There are other cases where the trade-off is a little bit trickier because security is something that users might like to have, but they don't demand. When you look at these trade-offs, you just have to figure out how much is, is the right amount. Now, I will say that none is often the wrong answer. <laughs> and so, you know, if, if, it, if your risk trade-off is like, well, you're not even consciously making that decision, you're just not having that decision, or thinking about it, that's not a good way to approach it. So if you consciously decide, I'm just gonna do a little bit, maybe I'll get a pen test done, that's all I can do now, that's all I can afford and all my users will really rely on, at least you're making a conscious decision about that risk trade-off. And I think that part of making security really work is making those decisions as explicit as possible. Yeah, as long as it's based on good data and, and the problem with humans is we're very bad at predicting the future it's I, yeah. i'm told it's you either think it's a zero or a one and and the problem with security is it's like a, a 0.95 and we can't deal with it but you know one of our points of view so we, we we have this investment thesis which basically talks about security first and we we say security first to be controversial because it's actually and security. And the, the thesis is, is that you should be putting security in alongside functionality. And the reason you want to do that is twofold. One is it's easier to do it right the first time than to try and back out a series of really dumb decisions. I think um, that's pretty well proven in the, in the literature. So you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. And everybody understands that from just building software. If you try to fix software later way more expensive yeah um, it's harder and it's more expensive I tell you what in our experience gets software executives jazzed is when you start saying well you're in in a, uh, a market that hasn't taken security and privacy seriously previously being able to take a, a differentiated stance in that market that gets them excited it's something to yeah. sell so not yeah. selling security as a feature but as a quality of the company and the product that does seem to get executives a little more jazzed because it fits into their growth revenue winning sort of mentality. That's right. Um, and in fact, you, you can see that impact even in fairly mature verticals like healthcare, which has some multi-billion dollar companies in it um, and also lots of little scrappy startups. But what you see is that those firms that have been focused on building security in over the last five years, use that as a differentiator. They say, well, we're better than our competitors and we actually care about your security to potential users of their stuff. And it does matter even in disciplines like healthcare. What's your view on talking about security practices and you know, educating the market and the customers on how you approach things? Is, is that a good or a bad thing? I think it's a good thing, but it has to be done carefully. So you don't want to do what Larry Ellison did and 
just say unbreakable and that's just like please hack me you know so you don't want to like say bring it on to the attackers but if you do it right you can say look we we care about the product that we're building enough to make it secure in the first place and here are some of the things that we do i would say that's not something that you market to consumers directly at least right now it doesn't make too much sense because it makes them worry first and then you try to assuage their worry so why worry them in the first place i know that when we're say getting another bank signed up for max uh, they ask a lot of stuff about security and they're always just absolutely blown out of the water by our responses in the fact that we've thought about it a lot so it really matters to the health of that business that we can have those answers um, and we know what we're doing and we can demonstrate that. And, and I think that, you know, depending on, like I said before, the, the type of startup you're talking about, that would be a good way to use security first. You've just joined a company. Uh, so you've just joined a, a, a venture-backed uh, growth stage company. You've got 15 people uh, in the engineering team. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not tiny, but it's not big. Like, yeah. You're the CTO, like, and they haven't been addressing security properly yeah. maybe there's been some best efforts by a couple of engineers that's pretty typical so where do you start i would either hire somebody to do a design analysis or do it myself from a security perspective and then i would get a code scanning tool that looks for bugs automatically depending on what tech stack would, would be how you would choose which tool to use to look for and eradicate bugs and make that use of that tool just part of everyday um, development, you know, at build time. And so I think both of those things are in some sense commodity services that you can buy from a number of different players. And that's how I would start, you know, and then probably the next thing I would do is send the developer guys to some sort of training. Got it. So talk to me about the, separation of church and state so it's it's i think it's harder in a smaller company where there's fewer executives so you might just have one vp of engineering or a cto that's leading the technical team but in general do you think it a good idea to as soon as possible have a person reporting to the ceo that is responsible for security that isn't conflicted by being measured on you know volume of features delivered or anything else like that it depends so in a small startup that really had 11 people probably one person that had half of their time devoted to software security might be enough so i'd say that the number of professionals that you need to focus on software security depends on your development group size and how much stuff you're building but don't forget even if you're integrating code from other people, somebody needs to take a look at that too. So the notion of uh, vendor control and you know understanding where stuff comes from and who built it and whether they thought about security when they were building parts that you use is also important part of this. What we've learned in security over the years is you assume nothing. We you say like, well, let me just take a look and see what what I think here and. It's certainly the case that in Management 101, if you really want to get something done, you make it somebody's job. So I wouldn't say, well, everybody's responsible for security, like in a, even in a small startup. I would want to name an individual and, and make them 
not only responsible, but give them some authority and a mandate and some budget to get that done. So if you are, if you are hiring security engineers or you're having a hard time doing it and you're looking in, inside the organization for people that you can upskill into those roles, what, what are the characteristics that you look for? Yeah, that, that, that's, that's tricky. Upskilling takes a number of years. So picking somebody and say, saying, hey, now you're the security guy because I'm giving you this hat. <laughs> may not be the best way to do it. But I do think that people that are software people make better software security people than people that are, say, network security people um, that have to learn everything about software. So I would really rather start with a software person and teach them about security than I would start with a network security guy and try to teach them about software. Maybe that's one thing that would be helpful advice. Yeah, that's a great point because often security has been left to being an operational role and you will find a number of network or sort of uh, infrastructure security people in those roles, which are not necessarily well suited. That's right. And uh, somebody who's, say, a manager of a LAN and can, you know, stand up a, a firewall on the network, but who does not understand how software is assembled and built and how all that stuff works is not going to be the person you want in charge of software security. Look, just changing tech for a minute, you were at the, uh, I think, was it the Baldwin School today, yeah. uh, talking about software security to, uh, to the girls there. It's an all-girls yeah. school. We, we've been involved with Ladies Learning Code up in Canada for a few years now. Um, and so we're interested in diversity in tech, and it's a, it's a tough challenge. We're all in security is particularly uh, probably even another order of magnitude tougher. So like talk a little bit about the, the reaction that you got and like what can we all be doing in the industry to get more young women involved in software security? The reaction was great. I actually had such a fantastic visit. It's sort of striking or interesting that I've never done that before. <laughs> so that was actually the first time I've ever talked to any group of high schoolers. And the fact that it was a whole bunch of women um, who were getting ready to go to college, you know, I talked to a bunch of seniors basically um, yesterday, was, uh, was particularly cool. The, I got a great reception. I, instead of giving a talk, we just did a QA thing. So we had an open floor and the time just flew by. The girls had all sorts of interesting questions. And I think that part of making diversity happen is, is just doing outreach to these, you know, to, to people that are um, either underprivileged or a different sex or a different race or a different whatever, you know, and, and letting them understand that how cool this is to be working on stuff like this. I think that security has sort of nice natural appeal on its own because it's got all sorts of thorny things you can talk about and it's got ethical issues, it's got policy issues, it's got technology stuff, you know, it's all rolled up together. So it makes it very interesting to even have a philosophical discussion um, about security and what things should be like versus what they are like now. And those sorts of conversations are suitable for everybody. All humans are interested in that. You know, we do have a challenge in technology, and that challenge is reflected in security, um, which is there are not enough women, there are not enough minorities, um, and we have to do what we can to address that explicitly 
Um, but there's no just add water simple solution, I don't think, other than outreach and, and you know, helping people realize that they can do this work. One last question, guilty pleasure. So what's the most enjoyable and or silly hacker movie or TV show that you have, would actually admit in public to watching? <laughs> One movie that I watched, I cannot recall the name of it, but it was about takedown. And if you know the story behind Takedown and Samotsu and all that stuff from the like a long, long time ago, they turned this into kind of a feature film. I think it was either Swedes or Norwegians who did it. But I watched that film with people who were being depicted in that film, like in the room. So we were all sitting next to each other. We all happened to be on Counterpane's technical advisory board. So Bruce Schneier got us all together and I was sitting with Dan Farmer, and I can't remember who else. There were, there were three uh, of the primaries in the room, and the best part, Drew Gross was one of the guys, and they had written him in the movie as the foil, who had asked the dumbest questions so that the rest of the people could explain what was going on from a technical perspective. So we were sitting next to Drew going, my God, I can't believe you asked what's an IP number, you idiot. And it was really, really, really fun. That was the, the most fun and ridiculous time I've ever had watching a hacker type movie. <laughs> that's, that's a great story. Thank, thanks, Gary. So we're pretty much out of time. Uh, before I let you go, I wanted to see if you had any other advice or final thoughts to share with the audience. Yeah. One kind of last thing to think about is, you know, it's very rare to talk to security people who are optimistic that we're actually making progress. And I am actually optimistic that we're making progress in the field of computer security. And that's because of software security. So that actually makes me happy and proud of the work that we've done and confident that we're doing a better job going forward. So that's, that's cool. That's, it's weird to see somebody old and grizzled like me with a gray beard um, who's optimistic, but I really am about, about the progress we're making.